Before we continue, thank you so much to all who have helped to put these services together. Uh, for our liturgist this morning, Alan Wenzel, for Gary Brubaker, who offered a great um, music for us, uh, for uh, Melody, who offers our children's time, um, for our praise team, and for Gary Brubaker, who puts all of our music together. Thank you. Thank you for all that you do, um, for all of your pictures and your stories. Thank you. Um, uh, as we continue in worship together uh, in this season of Lent, uh, Lent being the 40 days leading up to Easter, we're talking about the wilderness, uh, learning to walk in the dark wilderness stories. We're looking at some of the stories of wilderness throughout Scripture. We've looked at the story of Hagar. Uh, we've talked about Jacob. Um, we're going to talk about Moses today. And um, for the next few weeks after this, we'll talk about Jesus. We'll see what we, as we find ourselves in the wilderness, um, what we take with us into, what we carry with us, and what we take out of. Bishop Latrell Easterling, who is uh, from the Baltimore-Washington Annual Conference, she asked the question a few weeks ago, what are we prepared to leave in the wilderness when we emerge? What do we leave behind and what lessons do we keep? So today, we'll look at the story of Moses and the Israelites. Would you pray with me? God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, again, um, this, these stories of wilderness appear throughout scripture. It's not an uncommon motif or metaphor um, or image that's used throughout scripture. And sometimes it's used to describe the physical location. Um, I mean, the, the Moses and the Israelites are wandering the wilderness or wandering the desert for 40 years or for a generation. Um, and sometimes it's not so much of the physical location, but a, an emotional or a mental location. Um, a wilderness evokes feelings of loneliness or isolation or even abandonment by God. Feeling apart or feeling confused or feeling like God is just nowhere to be found. Now, the spoiler of that is that God is always with us, even in the wilderness. And these stories remind us that also, um, even as it may feel like God has abandoned, the stories show us where God has been the whole time. And no matter where we find ourselves in the wilderness, when we leave, we're always changed. It's a matter of how, how that happens and what we experience. So Moses and the Israelites, um, at this point in the story, they're no strangers to wilderness. When we encounter them, they've been wandering around the wilderness for 40 years, um, which is about the length of a generation. So 40 years is a pretty long time. So they've been wandering for a very long time. And if you think about that, wandering in the wilderness, either physically in the wilderness or even that emotional wandering for such a long time, that's so disorienting. I mean, it's just really uncomfortable doesn't seem to be 
the it's more than uncomfortable. I mean, it's uncomfortable and it's and there's a lot maybe of a fear in there, wondering will this ever end? Is it ever over? And throughout this journey, the Israelites, they are, they complain a lot. I mean, that's a common sound that's coming in this wandering um, as anything else in this journey. They complain. And it's easy to poke fun at them and be like, oh my gosh, they're always whining. They're always complaining. And that's true. And God gets annoyed with them sometimes. And this is uncomfortable. And it's hard. And God recognizes that too. So Moses is leading these people. And Moses has has become the leader of these people. Moses was called by God to help the Israelite people leave slavery in Egypt. Moses had an up-close and personal relationship with God. Now, that's been true of the stories that we've heard so far. The story of Hagar and Jacob and even Moses have experienced God by seeing God face-to-face or being up close and personal in ways that most people haven't. And so Moses has this up-close and personal relationship with God. And um, upon helping uh, the the Israelite people become free and leave Egypt— um, received the laws from God about how how these people would live. And they're headed toward the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that, that has been promised to them by God of freedom and hope. Now, ultimately, Moses doesn't enter the promised land. And, and actually, neither would a whole generation of Israelites. I mean, the complaining generation of Israelites. And yet, they still get there. Now, throughout these stories of the wandering in the wilderness, Moses interceded um, interceded with God many times with the Israelites, um, sometimes because of their complaining and sometimes because of their direct disobedience of God. They complained about food. Moses asked God, and and they were provided food. They complained about water, and Moses asked God, and they were provided with water. Moses left to get the law, and while he was gone, they built a golden calf, this golden idol that they worshipped. And when God saw this, God was furious because we don't worship golden idols. We don't worship these golden statues. And God was furious and Moses was like, whoa, 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 let me talk to them first. Like, we'll calm this down. So Moses has this history of interceding with God um, and the Israelite people. And in the end, God always provided for the Israelite people. Not always in the way that they expected and sometimes not in the ways that they wanted. And yet God always provided So in this passage that we have here from Numbers, the complaint in this passage is the food. The manna that God had provided for people was, well, okay, 
the Israelite people were like, this is not delicious. This is not good. Um, in fact, the word that they use to describe it is um, this worthless food. I mean, thanks God for this worthless food. Um, so God provides them this food that they call worthless. It's not tasty. It's not good. It's not delicious. And they dreamed of the food that they had as enslaved people. Oh, don't you just remember that food that we had in Egypt? Oh, there was garlic and spices. Oh, melons and cucumbers. Fish. Bread. Oh, so good. Oh, man. If we could just go back to Egypt. Just go back to Egypt and eat that food. It would be good. But we're going to die here in the wilderness eating this dry, crusty, worthless, miracle food. Thanks, God. This is the common way that the Israelites complained. It would be better for us to be in Egypt than it would be for us to die in the wilderness here. I mean, do you hear that? It would be better for us to be enslaved. It would be better for us to be beaten. It would be better for us to be treated as less than human than to be on this road to freedom. That would be better. The wilderness can sometimes make us lose focus. It can make us wish for what we know, even when what we know isn't good for us. And so as a result of their complaining, the Israelites are inflicted with poisonous snakes. Now, just an interesting side note, the Hebrew word used for snake or serpent in this passage, and there's actually two different words. The first time that it appears, it's the word nahas. And nahas is just a general word for serpent or for snake. The second time that it appears, it's sarapas, which means fiery serpent or poisonous. Now, here's why that's interesting. It means that this, this story was actually written by a collection of people, by two different groups of people. So it's actually a collective memory of what's been written, uh, of what's written of what happened. And I just find that fascinating that this is a collective story of what we remember. Yeah, it was snakes. It was po no, no, it was poisonous snakes. So this collective memory gets shared and passed along. So side note, but fun. Um, so these poisonous snakes, these serpents are attacking the Israelites. And after they were bit, then they died. And so this has been happening and they go to Moses and are like, whoopsies, my bad. Um, we're, uh, we're sorry. Can you like, can you tell God to stop? Like, no, no more snakes. Sorry. Um, 
And so once again, Moses intercedes with God um, and God offered mercy to the Israelites. Uh, God told Moses to raise up a bronze snake and when the Israelites looked up at it, they wouldn't die from their bites. Okay, here's what I, um, I thought about doing for this sermon is I thought about finding a snake and bringing it in here and like holding it up during the sermon. And then I remembered I didn't want to do that. So um, Moses held up this bronze snake. Okay, this is a fun little story, right? And maybe it's a story that you're familiar with and maybe not. Um, it's a fun little vignette in the larger story. It's also really complicated too. Um, from the Israelites' perspective, this came as a punishment from a direct disobedience and offense from God. So there's complications to it too, because that's also not necessarily how we experience God today. That God doesn't directly, just because we complain, God's not like poisonous snake. That's not how we understand God to work today, but it is how they understood it then. And so if we look at this story, some in the details, but also in the larger picture, this wilderness story, being in the wilderness is uncomfortable and also offers an opportunity for something new. If it were easy to do it, we'd be jumping at the opportunity. But going from here to here with the wilderness in between isn't, isn't easy. The wilderness is a liminal space. You're here and you're trying to get to here and in the middle of it, you're neither place. You're neither here nor there, you're somewhere else. And so for the Israelite people, they're in this liminal space. They're no longer enslaved people and yet they're not in the promised land yet. And wouldn't it be better just to be in that place that we know, that we know what that ground is like instead of this place? And in the unknown, we can focus just so much on that, on the unknown. I mean, it can be disorienting and feel lost. We have to be reminded of where we're going. We were there. We're going here. A couple of years ago, um, we were visiting a place um, that was full of like tourist attractions, um, including this high wire obstacle course, like 50 feet above in the ceiling. Um, and uh, you could be hooked up to harnesses and safety wires. Um, and zip along these wires and this course that was located high up in the ceiling, high up in the ceiling. Um, and you would zip from one place to the other um, going through this. And so um, there was a young girl at one of these locations. 
Um, she was on this one ledge. Now it's hard to gauge ages from, you know, 50 feet down below, but she looked to be like maybe nine or 10, preteen kind of age. Um, and she was getting ready to jump from this one ledge, um, this like, I think it was the largest ledge, and she would zip over to the other place and then finish the course from there. Um, so this is like the last, whew, um, whew. Um, so she was getting ready to do this and you could tell that she was terrified. I mean, I was terrified looking at it. You could tell that she was terrified. She would stand at the edge of the ledge or she would like tiptoe to it and she would look she would just get ready to go like, you know, just you could watch her whole body like just getting ready and and then all of a sudden she'd scoot back and she'd cling to the equipment and she'd cling to the person who was there and and she'd look down and then she'd scream and just start sobbing like you could hear these sobs echoing throughout the building. And this happened, I don't know, maybe five or six times. And and about like the fifth or sixth time she, she got back and you could just see her whole body shaking and sobbing. Um, and then all of a sudden, like from everyone down below who had stopped to watch this, there was this slow clap of, you can do it, you can do it. And people cheering for her. And it took a few more times and she would get to the edge and then go back and, and there would just be this encouragement from everyone down below. And, and it just got to be the part where it looked like she was just admitting that this wasn't going to happen. She was done. Her body is sobbing, her face. And, and it got quiet and there was like this collective silence. Like, we understand we're on the bottom too. We're not going up on the top. There's this collective like... It's all right. We support you regardless. And then all of a sudden, there was this shout from somewhere. Someone shouted, don't look down. Keep moving forward. And there was this collective clapping and a couple more attempts by her. We watched. She went up to the ledge and she would go back and finally she took off running and she um she took that step off of the ledge and she zipped down and she screamed and cried the whole way as the zip line did all the rest of the work for her and she landed on the other side to finish the journey now at one point she was on the ledge and then she was on the other ledge. But in the middle, she was on no ledge. And the more she looked down, the more she was going nowhere. But when she looked up, she was reminded where she was going. We're coming up on an anniversary of a year of being in a pandemic. And it's been difficult for many people for many reasons. We don't all have the same reasons and it's been hard. And the truth is we're not done yet. The pandemic isn't over. 
there are moments of miracles and moments of hope. And still there's more to go. There's where we were in the beginning of March 2020. And where we'll be in the future. And right now we're, well, we're somewhere. What will we take with us when we emerge from the wilderness? A friend of mine who works in higher education recently said of the pandemic, said if, if we change nothing about our lives, this year will have been a waste. This pandemic has offered us an opportunity to, to do that, to learn, to evaluate, to reprioritize both as individuals and as a society. We've seen gaps and places where people have been left behind in society and it's become glaring at us. What will we do with what we've learned? And yet we're also like the Israelites. <sighs> Wouldn't it be better if we can just go back to the way that things were before? One place, another place. <sighs> to have life, the Israelites have to look up, stop looking down. The word that's used there is the word raw. And it doesn't mean just to see, but see and believe. Look up at that snake, see and believe. When you look down, you're still lost and disoriented. Look up, see what's possible, believe. The passage also doesn't promise that the snakes are gone. They're still there. People are actually still getting bitten. And that's what it says is you will be bitten, but you won't die. God is still there. Look up and see life. God is with us in the wilderness, in the seemingly no place. God is there. Even in our failures and disappointments, God is there. Even in our hurt and our pain, God is there. Even in our faithlessness and our lostness, God is there. God offers us what we need, food, water, direction, hope, what we need. We just need to look in the right direction. See, believe, amen.